Welcome to Beggar's Bread, a podcast where we invite Christians and truth seekers to engage with thoughtful sources in an age of disinformation. Our name is inspired from the quote by D.T. Niles, evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Each week, we recommend a source for you, either a sermon, podcast, or video. This week, we bring you Peru, Arizona, and everything in between. And with that, this is Luke here in Wisconsin, and I'm joined by Sister Marianne Spangers. Uh, How's it going? Uh, Well, I should say Aunt Marianne. (laughs) It's going great, Luke. It's great to hear your voice. Yeah, it's good to be with you. And um, my Aunt Marianne is a sister from the Franciscan Sisters of Christian Charity. Uh, She holds a master's degree in theology and religious studies from St. John's University in New York. She is currently a teacher at San Miguel High School in Tucson, Arizona. So she's joining us all the way from Tucson. And from my childhood, I've witnessed my Aunt Marianne live a life of service and devotion to God and the church. And it is a real joy to interview her today. So thanks again. Um, I'm excited to get started. Uh, thanks, Luke. It's wonderful to be part of this with you. I'm I'm proud of you for having this podcast. I think any time there is more truth um, being spoken uh, on our worldwide media, it it helps people to uh, to find the 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 right line and the right direction in their lives. So I'm I'm just glad you're doing this. Oh, absolutely! Thanks for that encouragement and. For those of you wondering, okay, she's your aunt. Why is she on the podcast? Um, we're I'm really here to ask about uh, Aunt Marianne's experiences on the southern border and also in Latin America. Um, she has a lot of expertise uh, with just thinking about immigration in general. Before we delve into the immigration policies and some big picture ideas, um, let me just start, though, by asking Aunt Marian, uh, could you tell us about San Miguel High School and what sets San Miguel High School apart from other high schools and who your students are? Sure. Well, I, I am really blessed to be teaching at San Miguel. It is a Cristo Rey school, uh, which is part of a, a Jesuit network in the United States. I think there's 34 Cristo Rey schools, and the, the population... Uh, that we serve our students from economically um, struggling families. And the, the school um, system is one, uh, a dual system of academics, of course, and of corporate work study. And our students work in uh, businesses all around the city, which helps with the tuition, but it also is part of their formation. We are a college prep school and most of our students are uh, first-generation um, students from immigrant families. Uh, many of them, for the, they are the first ones in their families going to college. Uh, for some of them, they are the first ones in their families graduating high school. So our students uh, are very, um, they're, they're very, wonderful young people. They, they know how to work hard and they know what it means to work hard. And um, so I always say there's, there's no entitlement in, our, in, in my students. They are very uh, appreciative. They're, they're a lot of fun. And, um, and it's just a real blessing to be with them. The population of San Miguel is 
uh, roughly 85% Hispanic, 10% Native. Um, I do live on the Native reservation of the Tahona O'odham people, uh, San Javier Mission, with, with four other sisters. And uh, another 5% or so of refugee families are in the school. So we have uh, a population of uh, students that uh, understand that um, life is not always something that is planned or is, um, is definitely not easy. But there is also a lot of love and a lot of family support that I find among our students. Um, and the families are very proud of them for their hard work and they're, they're receiving their education and working for their education so that they will be able to um, continue helping their families um, once they get a college degree, which I have witnessed. And it's just a, it's just a really neat system and uh, I'm really blessed to be part of it. Wow, that... That sounds like a really wonderful place, uh, but definitely a place where it sounds like you'd have to have a lot of grit to get through that. I mean, working and doing school, definitely more. I think I was very fortunate to just focus on my studies. I really didn't have to work while I was in high school. <laughs> I love the word grit. Well, the the work is actually um, incorporated into the week. So one day a week, our students uh, work um, basically eight to four thirty jobs. So they are bused um, with little minivans to their different places of employment, and then brought back to the school at the end of the day. So the work portion is is integrated into the 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 school the academic week which makes the their you're right makes their academics uh, a little bit more demanding because they have one less day of uh in you know in school classes so they have to stay with the program academically as well so um yeah your observation is really a good one and how long i forgot to put this in our questions ahead of time but how long have you been teaching at san miguel and what topics are you teaching typically this is my seventh year, and this year I am teaching a course on um, ecclesiology with the seniors. Prior to that, I had been teaching uh, juniors uh, morality and social justice. So uh, this semester with the seniors, it's an ecclesi ecclesiology course, and the second semester is um, spirituality and world religions. We'll, get, um, we'll look at that the last six weeks. So, um, so it's a, it's a great learning curve for me. So I, I'm teaching, yeah, theology, basically juniors and seniors since I've been here. Got it. And before your time at San Miguel, um, uh, remind me, I believe you were teaching in Wisconsin as well or different places? I was, uh, well, I was, um, prior to San Miguel, I, I had been teaching at our college, um, Silver Lake College of the Holy Family as an adjunct teaching in their theology department for a few years. And at the same time, I was on uh, the uh, vocation formation team for my congregation. So I was the vocation director um, for seven years, um, seven or eight, eight maybe, um, which was walking with young women discerning if um, giving their life to the Lord as a Franciscan sister was the direction for them. So um, 
yeah, it was kind of a combination of, of the two. Um, and yeah, and then the, the adjuncting, as we know, adjuncting is when is needed, you're needed, and when you're not, you're not. And um, the, one of the sisters that was studying in Rome had returned, and so my time of adjuncting had come to a, a conclusion, and at that time, it was 2015, and there were a lot of unaccompanied minors being um, brought over and coming to the southern border, and I contacted uh, the Franciscans who work, Franciscan friars, who have a parish down in McAllen, and they were, um, at the time, um, helping with the immigrants through Catholic Charities. And Sister Norma Pimentel, um, who is a nationally known advocate of um, immigrants, uh, was running the, the, the outreach, and they were in need of volunteers. And so kind of I was in between positions, and uh, my community supported me in going down to McAllen and living with the Franciscan sister down there and working um, in the uh, Sacred Heart outreach for um, immigrants being released from ICE uh, on the Texas-Mexican uh, uh, border uh, by the Rio Grande there. So I was down there for about uh, six, seven months uh, as a volunteer. Um, so that was a very Oh, powerful uh, experience. And then just so that I've got a kind of a picture, I know we've been kind of working backward in time. Um, you know, right now you're in Arizona. Right before that, did you go right from Texas to Arizona? Or I know your home congregation's in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Is that right? Correct. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was teaching. Well, our, our college was right there in Manitowoc. And then, um, actually, it was 2014. Now you spoke speak about going backwards. Uh, so, yes, in 2014, in November, I went to um, McAllen. And I was down in McAllen, Texas, um, those months until about March of 2015. And then I, I actually, one of the reasons I, I needed to leave McAllen was the climate um, was really not what I expected. It was very cold and damp uh, being near the Gulf, and it was wintertime. And there, the, the center uh, was a big parish hall and not a lot of ventilation. And there were a lot of um, uh, sick people that came through, and I was interviewing them. And I developed some respiratory um, uh, issues, and it wasn't getting better. And then, then they closed the border, and all of a sudden there were all these volunteers that no one was able to... To, to serve. There was no, no one there. So it was like the Lord said it was time um, due to the health issues as well as uh, it seemed like they didn't, I wasn't as much in need. So I talked to the, my leadership in Manitowoc and thinking I'd go back, back there. And they suggested I go to Tucson where the air is drier and get, and have time with our sisters here and hopefully help my health would improve, which is exactly what happened. So then I came to Tucson and continued working with Catholic Charities, um, with the, the immigrant population, again, being released from, um, from ICE, the, um, um, 
authorities in Tucson, there was a, there's an outreach center. Um, and so I worked um, for a number of months uh, with the people there and doing very much the same as what I was doing in, in Texas. And then an opening came for uh, teaching theology. And that is, that is my, my love is teaching and my profession is teaching. So I, I applied and was hired. And because it's very, and it's very close to, to the convent where the sisters teach at a grade school here on the reservation. So it worked out great. It was the, the Lord made it all happen. Um, so now I'm, I'm teaching students um, of families who are immigrants. Uh, so God just keeps opening up all kinds of doors and windows um, and using me as I, I hope he wants me to be used. Absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit, I know I've been jumping around so much, and I know you've also spent time in Peru back in the 90s, but this, um, before I keep jumping around, um, can you tell us a little bit about that time that you volunteered in Texas and also before you took the teaching position, what that was like, what those experiences were like? Uh, uh, as I said, I think they were some of the most powerful experiences I had, uh, Luke. It, it's, it's, it's encountering families, and it was mostly families that, that we worked with. There were some individuals, uh, especially young people, but most of the young people under 18 um, were put into another um, holding place by the government uh, because they were minors. Um, but it was so it was a lot of families that that I um, encountered, uh, young families with with children. Uh, there were some elderly as well. Uh, so the experience is one of encounter of of getting to know people personally. And I would do a lot of the intake. And so we'd be sitting across the table from each other. And some and, and Catholic Charities kept really uh, good records. And so, of course, names and places and children and reasons why, why you left your country. And in, in McAllen, as well as here in Tucson, uh, the, the majority of people were coming from uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And uh, the, the reason was because of um, th corruption and threats and, and persecution. And um, the, the cartels are unfortunately very infiltrated into the governments of these countries in many ways. And they have um, way too much power over people's lives. And so people that would have businesses uh, would have to pay like a, a, a monthly um, payment in order to keep their business from being blown up or being um, taken over by the cartel. Well, they would fall behind. And if they wouldn't pay the, the monthly fee that the cartel um, would, you know, um, demand, they would either be killed or someone in their family would be killed. Or So there was this constant, they were constantly living under threats. Young people, um, young, young men and young women, but especially young men that were, you know, 12 years, 13, 14, 15 years old, their families, they were being recruited by these um, 
these cartels, these gangs, some of it's just gang um, control. Um, and they, the families, of course, the parents didn't want it and the kids didn't want to. But again, it's, it's a matter of survival. And so the only thing to do is to leave because uh, otherwise your son or daughter is lost forever into this really dark, dark reality of um, gangs and drugs and um, a lot of violence. My connection with all this with Peru is I lived and, and ministered in Peru um, from 1991 to 2001. And, um, Peru was going through a, a very hard time through the um, first half of those years with uh, the terrorist group Sendero Luminoso. And um, my experience, I was teaching, again, teaching young women that worked as maids in the homes of the wealthy in Lima and also had a mission, was part of a mission up in the mountains, in the Andes Mountains of, of Otusco, um, north of Trujillo. And the displacement of people I learned then because the, the terrorist group, um, the Shining Path in English, would infiltrate the, the villages uh, in the jungles and the mountains of Peru. And they would set up these kangaroo courts and find um, people guilty of conspiring with the government. And so, and, and they would they would do this systematically and they would um, put on trial in the middle of the night. They'd get everybody out of their homes in the middle of the night and they'd put whoever was still in the village that had any kind of leadership. So if the mayor or if the, um, a lot of times the principal of the school or um, if there were police, but the police had mostly abandoned these villages, and they would find them guilty of conspiring with the government, and they would they would um, they would kill them in front of everyone. And many of my students from Peru saw their their fathers and brothers and mothers killed in front of them, and they would go hiding up in the mountains. And so then they would make their way to Lima to find work. And um, some villages that would be monitoring the movement of the terrorists of Sendero would know that they were coming. So they, as a whole village, would leave and in the middle of the night and then overnight they would set up what we would call um, shanty towns. Um, they were made of, um, they'd make these, these homes out of straw, woven straw, straw homes, um, overnight. And they would be like um, on the, the sides, the outskirts of Lima because Lima at that time was still being protected by the police and by the military. And so they, as displaced people, would try to find a new way of living uh, in a very, very difficult situation on the outskirts of Lima, um, in living in straw homes without water, without you know electricity or anything. But it was one way for them to escape uh, the terrorists um, of their mountain villages. And so learning um, from my students the, the trial and the, the trauma of having to leave your home and, and resettle in, in a completely 
unfamiliar uh, setting, I think prepared me um, and helped me understand better why people from the Central American Triangle um, and now from Haiti and from Afghanistan and from so many places um, are, are, are forced to leave and look for a new, new way of living and a, a safer place to live. It's, it's out of complete desperation. It's out of wanting to protect your family. Uh, it's out of wanting to preserve your life. And I don't think that many of us in the United States have any understanding of that, the desperation that would make someone have to make that move. And, um, and then the adjustment that, that has to happen in all that and the vulnerability. Um, and, but they know that they can't stay where they are because it will, it will just lead to death. Uh, violence and death. So, um, I, I, that is what uh, inspired me, I think, because of my work there to go and um, work with the people on the border of McKellen and, and of Tucson, because I would find the, the same motivation, the same struggles, the same desperation, and I think if there's any message I want your listeners to to receive from our our talk today, our our discussion, it is that we need to try harder to put ourselves in the um, in the shoes of another and in situations that are so difficult and so life and death. Um, oriented that there's there's no way to have an answer except to leave, and so when when people, you know, you I mean there's so many there's so much misinformation going on about why why immigrants and refugees come to the to our borders, and um, it's it's not because they want to, it's because there is no choice, and who of us would not do whatever we had to, to protect our families. Um, right. So that, um, anyway, I'm probably getting well, let me, myself here. No, no. I mean, this is great. I honestly, hey, Marion, you're the, you're the ideal interviewee because I just ask you a question and then you tell us really what you've experienced, what you've witnessed, what you know. So I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Um, I'm wondering, and this may sound silly. I, I think I, know the answer is corruption but do you mind explaining a little bit because I, I think to our at least without knowing and hearing kind of what you've said in the past my initial reaction would be well if a if someone's pressuring them to join a cartel or a gang why don't they just go to the police or their intelligence agency do you mind just expounding on that a little bit about why that's not an option Sure, and and I'll tell you from my experience living down in in, in Lima. Um, so gradually, uh, Sendero, the the Shining Path, uh, which was a Maoist group, which their their goal was to um, destroy everything and then rebuild from the ashes is was the goal, and they were doing that in in uh, in Peru, and they were you know, um, anyone in their way, they were um, 
eliminating, killing, and their their tactics were such that uh, they would recruit from the poor poor areas, um, young boys and girls, and they would tell the parents if and and basically pick them up off the street and say you're gonna you're gonna be part of our movement, part of the the group, the terrorist group. They wouldn't call themselves terrorists, but everybody else did. And they would tell the parents, if you object, if you um, cause a fuss, uh, we will kill your child. And they would tell the children, uh, and these are kids as young as 10 or 12 years old, um, and they would say, if you, if you cause a fuss, you don't do what we tell you to do, we'll kill your parents. And, and they would, and, and that happened. And so uh, a lot of this is done through uh, intimidation and violence and uh, and murder and killing and so then they would take these young kids and they would uh, brainwash them and we always knew when and eventually so they they were able to take a lar large control of the villages and the towns in the mountains and their goal was to make their way through Lima to Lima and to cut off Lima from the rest of the country, meaning no more imports, no more exports, no more food, no more, you know, and, and they, were, they were achieving that. And we knew that they were there in Lima. And the reason we would know this is a variety of reasons. One, um, the way, and, and I'm sorry I'm gruesome, but some of this is just too real that you can't not speak about it. Indoctrinating, brainwashing young people to become part of the terrorist group is they would um, make them um, kill animals, um, cats and dogs, uh, with their bare hands strangling. And then they would um, hang the animals by the, the power lines or by trees. Um, and then you knew when you woke up in the morning and you saw these these dead animals that Sendero was out there. And, and they would do that as a fear tactic to everybody that lived in the neighborhood. Um, they would also blow up um, the power grids and so they would cause you know all parts of the city to be uh, in darkness and uh, you know Lima is I don't know how many million people about eight million people or so so and then then when things are dark it's there's more violence going on so going to the police first of all in the villages up in the mountains and the jungle the police abandoned the people because they knew they'd be killed and so there were no police to go to. So if you lived up in one of these villages, which would be like in Wisconsin, you know, our farm farm cities, you know, up, up north that are not as as populated, but they're still, you know. They still got a county police and sheriff and Right, right. And so there the, there were no police, there were no authorities, uh, you know, and so then that's a problem because when you come to seek asylum in the United States, you need to have your um, complaints and you need to have it proven that you went to the police to get help. Well, there's no police to go to. So there's nobody to register your complaint that you're being threatened by this this terrorist group, okay? Um, so the other, so that was one thing. Then in the, in the, the shanty towns, in the, as we would call them, um, the barrios, we'd say, around Lima, the police were many times part of Sendero. 
again, having to be paid off because the, the police would pay off the terrorists so that they would leave them alone. And so not that they wanted to be corrupt, but if you didn't pay them off, then you'd get killed. And um, the same with businesses. And the same happened to the school I was teaching at in Maria Arena. The, it was a school of 2,000 students, grade school and high school. And the superintendent, who was a, a good friend of, uh, of the sisters, um, and we lived right at part of the compound in, in Lima there. Of the, our, our convent was part of the, the, the whole school system there. Uh, one evening he came and asked to talk to us. And uh, he, he, he often would ask for prayer and would just confide. And he sat down at the, at the, the table and he said, you know, they came to see me. And I hadn't been in Peru as long as some of the other sisters. I said, well, who came to see you? And he said, well, Sendero. And I was like, what? And he said, yes, they, um, they want to charge the school to... Um, so that they won't blow them up, you know, pay a, a, a regular uh, amount every month, and then they won't, they won't put a bomb, car bombs. At, in, in Lima, the big deal was car bombs is how they, they did. And I looked at him, he said, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. And I looked at him, I said, well, you can't, you can't pay them off. And he said, and if I don't, I have over 2,000 young people and teachers, you know, it was as it was a horrible dilemma that that he was in. And um, and then if you go to the police, the police will just say, you know, well, there's nothing we can do because it's out of our control. And, and mostly be, or they'd say, you know, we'll we'll send patrols around to watch. Well, you know, what good is that going to do after they blow up your buildings? Um, you know, so it, it's the, the difficulty with the 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 government and the and the law enforcement so we in the united states there there is corruption in our law enforcement but there is much more uh, integrity and honesty than there is corruption and for all the faults and flaws of our our um, law enforcement system it still works and uh, justice is being is being served and most the majority um, of our police stations and our military are honest and uh, have integrity and their their goal is to protect the citizens the people um, but down there the corruption has gotten to the point of so much infiltration of the um, members of the mafia or the the um, cartels or the gangs into the police, um, especially the local police, that there's you can't trust them because they're they're worried about their own lives as well, and you don't know when you go and you talk to someone in law enforcement, is this person really. Um, in law enforcement or are they also working for the cartel and if they are working for the cartel and you register a complaint complaint against them well you're just registering your death sentence because now they know exactly where you live and they know exactly your movements and they know and so 
So it's very difficult to, to be able to support um, the threats that are ha that that you receive or that your business receives because there's there's no integrity there. I see. Yeah. That. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'm just. If it's okay, I'm gonna just move on right to the next question because um, that was very thorough and yeah, very insightful. Um, I know in right just a little bit uh, earlier today, you sent me a document that you had presented to some members of Congress. Um, I know that was in 2015. Um, so I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about what your message was to them and how it was received, or if it was received at all, really. I, I hope it was received. I, I don't know that there were, um, I'm not sure what results other than hopefully um, bringing the conversation, continuing to, to bring the conversation to uh, our, you know, um, representatives and, and senators of um, individual um, individuals like myself who have been trying to be a voice for those who have no voice. Um, so as I worked with um, Catholic Charities in McAllen and here in Tucson, um, I, I have the utmost respect for uh, that organization, also um, many other nonprofits that continue to do the, the heavy lifting of really helping um, immigrants and refugee seekers. So I went under the, the encouragement of a friend of mine who works, who has business ties to some um, national defense um, groups. And, and he, he was very familiar with how, to, how it works on Capitol Hill which I had no clue. Um, and we, we went and went to the, the offices and we had appointments of um, a variety of Congress men and women and senators. Mostly I, I spoke with the staffers uh, who, were, who, who mostly received me quite well. Um, the goal was to bring to the fore the reality of those that are coming to our borders, looking for uh, for safety and looking for a new beginning in their lives, and um, many of the staffers took the information, and I, I, you know, created an outline, and uh, and and were quite respectful and and listened. Um, some not so much. Some wouldn't even give me much time at all. Um, and so I just left the information with them. And it was basically trying to tell the story and using um, some of the uh, Universal Declaration on Human Rights uh, violations and concerns and trying to uh, give another voice to what was, what was happening to them um, and also to, and I, and I was blessed. I had uh, an immigration attorney, um, Manuel Guerrera, um, who supported what I was doing. And so I, I tried to do this in a, 
in a systematic academic way and tell some of the stories. Um, the pace that um, the staffers as well as the Congress people and senators work in DC was um, really a challenge. It's just there's so much going on uh, all at the same time. So I, I did feel somewhat listened to, somewhat I felt like I was just another uh, addendum. Um, and um, it, it was a it was a challenging experience. It was a good experience. I don't know what I would do it again unless there was a really compelling reason um, that would speak to say going again because I, I don't know how much I was really listened to. Um, I see. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, that can and, be really again, discouraging. It, it was a good experience, and and I don't mean to um, not th those that that well that did listen were very respectful and uh, interested. I I think that there is so much going on in our government that it is very hard for them to stay with one issue at a time because and and they can't obviously uh there's so many issues that are being presented and always in need of being addressed and the issue of immigration unfortunately has been taking a back seat to some of the other really important issues also in our country but because of that our immigration system is broken and it hasn't been addressed um, for way too long and so we have thousands of Haitians under a bridge uh, that have no hope of, of entering or even being processed because we don't have the personnel or the, the resources to do it because we have not addressed the issue of, of how, to, um, how to help or, or uh, encounter. Uh, displaced persons, and it's not just us in the United uh, in the United States. It is all around the world. There are more displaced persons uh, in our world than there ever was in the history of our world, as as far as written history goes. And so, we in the United States are dealing with some of the same issues other developed countries are, and not dealing with them very well, unfortunately. Yeah, I noticed. Um, and I'm glad you're using, I think I've noticed displaced just as the, the continuity between Peru, your time in Texas, time in Arizona. Um, and you know, even now with Afghanistan and Haiti, um, I did want to ask you, I was looking at the document that you sent me and that you presented. I know again, this is back in 2015, but you mentioned in it something called Operation Streamline, which came all the way from 2005. Do you mind just talking about that briefly? Sure. Operation Streamline is going along. It's alive and well, unfortunately, in Tucson, and I'm, I'm guessing in other parts of the country. It, I don't know. Perhaps it's an Arizona thing, um, but uh, I don't think so. Um, so Operation Streamline is... Uh, was developed in 2005 in addressing 
uh, undocumented immigrants crossing from the southern border that would be prosecuted through federal criminal justice system. And in a way of, of streamlining it, um, the, the justice system came up with uh, a proposal of having the, the undocumented who were caught coming across the border without papers um, plead to a lesser charge uh, instead of, um, now let me think, get my, my terminology correct here. Um, well, it looks like I've just pulled it up. You mentioned that they'll be prosecuted through the federal criminal justice system instead of the civil immigration system. Right. Well, they could plead to a misdemeanor. If they would plead to a misdemeanor instead of a federal crime, then their time in prison, well, not necessarily shortened, but they wouldn't have it on their record that they had um, a federal, it wasn't considered a federal crime, it was considered a misdemeanor. Part of this, unfortunately, in Arizona, is uh, a great system for Arizona because we in Arizona have non uh, for, we have for profit prison systems so we have private a private prison system and by continuing to send uh, undocumented um, men and women to prison we continue to support the economy of Arizona. And that, that's pretty crude, but that's the reality. Um, and so what Operation Streamline does is when you have been caught coming across the border without papers, um, then you are put in prison in Eloy or um, um, up north, and you have your time in court. And you go to court, and I've witnessed this, um, and you're in a jumpsuit and you're shackled, both your hands and your feet, so you can hardly move. Uh, the only crime you have done is you have come into the country without papers. There is no other crime uh, behind your name. Because if, if there were, if, if upon investigation, you know, uh, a person had murdered someone or stolen or something, then they would have, it would be a federal indictment. This is, is not. And so when you walk into the courtroom, then you are given a lawyer, then you stand, and this is done like 70, 80 people at a time for, you know, and you stand in front of the judge and the judge, it, it's, it's, it's so demeaning. And the, the judge, I feel bad for the judges because their hands are tied because this is um, an accepted policy that, um, the judge said, so you are willing to plead guilty for coming into this, coming into the, the United States. And the person says, says yes. Well, the, the, um, the, the lawyer translates, the person says yes. And so then, uh, then with the, the stroke of a gavel, okay, you will be sentenced to, um, you know, one year in prison, two years in prison, six months in prison. Um, and then they're, they're escorted off with their shackled hands and feet which is really demeaning for having not committed any crime. And then the next group's brought in. And so it's, it's really a very, it doesn't say much for our court system, our justice system. 
I um, see. But it's a way of dealing with with um, people uh, in a swift way, and it keeps the prison system um, alive and well because then the the tax payers pay for you know people that are being uh, indicted, and these for-profit prisons are the ones that make all the money, and yet, and then the money is is kept inside the the state. Um, and and I'm I'm not a politician, so I'm probably not explaining this the best. But um, again, the American taxpayer is providing a boon for the for-profit prison industry, um, and and people get stuck in these prisons with hardcore criminals because they're in federal prisons. Right. It's certainly not helping them adjust um, to a new place or not. Uh, well, let me ask this question because um, uh, there's a there's a couple questions that I, I'm really grateful for everything we've been talking about. But let me ask, when someone lives in the United States as an undocumented immigrant, so let's say, I don't know, perhaps they aren't for if they go to prison or not. Um, how is their life different from documented immigrants and from American citizens? Um, well, there's always a fear. There's always a fear that you're going to be caught and get sent back. Uh, so th there, are, there are no... Okay, so during this time of COVID, you know, the government um, was helping those that lost jobs or those that got sick. Um, there is no help for un undocumented, and you can't apply for any kind of help. And so they are among the poorer of the poor in our country. Um, and many of them are contractors, self-contractors, so they'll, uh, people will um, get jobs um, doing um, yard work or lawn care or um, landscaping or construction or um, hotel um, work, um, restaurant laborers or, you know, day laborers a lot. Um, and so when that job disappears, then um, you don't have any recourse. There is nothing besides, although you do pay, you do pay, um, uh, tax, income tax. Uh, so undocumented workers are paying into our system, but they are getting zero benefits. Um, I'll give you some examples from from my students. So some of the the family members of some of my students are not documented, and they have been uh, living in the United States 20, 30 years. 15, 20, 30 years, okay. So one day, um, this happened a couple years ago, so one day, two years ago, one of my students is late coming to class and she's visibly upset. And during break, I just, you know, pull her aside and said, you know, what's going on, what happened? We were stopped because, I don't know, there was, didn't use, the mom didn't use the flashers or the, the direction signal on time or something. So they're on the highway, on a, on a highway, uh, and the police stop them. And they ask the mom for her papers, which they don't have the right to do, but they did. And she doesn't have them with her. She's not documented. She doesn't say that. But 
and because of that, and she doesn't, I don't know if she, um, she, she, her driver, she doesn't have a driver's license because she can't get one because she's not documented. Now they have been living in the United States. Oh gosh, oh, this, my student was 17, so probably 20 years. And, um, you know, working, family lives there, raising her children. And um, so they left the girls, my student, junior in high school, and her two sisters who were in grade school on the side of the road. Uh, and the police um, called an uncle to come get them while they took mom to, um, to prison, to, to jail, to get it sorted out. And so these young ladies are being traumatized because out of nowhere, one day that was just ordinary like every other day, their mother was picked up and was now going to be deported. And one thing our country does do quickly is deportations. And many people are deported within 24 hours. Um, and so that fear of having your whole life taken out from under you after having lived in an established community, raising your children um, is very real. And I've experienced it with my students and others um, more often than not. And that is a, a, a reality that I don't think any of us who are citizens of this country uh, can conceive that one day on your way to school or taking your kids somewhere, you could get picked up and, and be deported to a country that you never ever even grew up in because mom came over as a young girl who was from parents who were not documented. So she was a DACA person. And so her whole life was living in the United States and you know married and, and raised her family. And now all of a sudden she's being deported because she has no papers and uh, the fact that she has been a law-abiding citizen and has been contributing to the community and raising her children and then what happens to the children you know if dad is in the picture and 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 if he's working how is he going to take care of the kids while the kids are are not in school and so many times uh, especially if it's single parent families the children become wards of the state. So they get put into the foster system. So you tell me that that's good for our country, that we disrupt families and put um, their children into foster care? And it's just the whole cycle gets all um, out of whack, <laughs> for not a better way to say it. Um, I, I don't know. That's a long response to your question. No, that's... that's uh... I, I really appreciate it. Again, I I think my, my general philosophy on interviews, and I don't mention this to you before we started, but for our listeners, is really to hear the most from people I'm interviewing because uh, everybody gets to hear me out of the other episodes and uh, I'm not the expert. I don't have all the expertise or experience, so I'm very grateful for it. Um, kind of pivoting, because uh, very clearly this is a very broken system or I know sometimes people will say a system is designed for the results it's getting. So you could say it's, it's working very well for what we're getting, but we could say it's a, a system that is not good. Um, what is, and I know this, you know, we, we can continue any 
lingering thoughts on anything, please, you know, go ahead and, and mention them. But, um, what, what is your desire for, uh, America and how it could change the way we help immigrants, um, whether that's with our border, undocumented immigrants, people who are already here, um, your desire for Central America? I know that's kind of a lot of questions all at once. So um, I know it's a big question. <laughs> well, I think, um, Luke, the latest insights that keep coming to me um, are that we are... are we're not doing ourselves any favors by our, our immigration system. And I, and I say that because our country is, um, is built on immigrants coming for a better life. And um, every generation, there have been new waves of immigrant peoples from different parts of our world who have come to our country with basically nothing and have worked themselves up into um, reaching potential for their lives, for their families, uh, for the country. And with the closing of our borders and with not developing a way for legal citizenship for people who so desperately want it, we are really closing our own potential as a country. And I, I say this in, in a very practical sense. I, during the summer, I was able to, to, uh, to travel like many of us who hadn't been able to do that for two years. And I was down in Florida and I was um, back up in Wisconsin and um, you know, communicating with my friends in, in different parts of the country. And every place, every business is looking for workers. Every place. There, there is such um, a, a dearth of, um, of workers that employers are having to close their, their restaurants or their businesses uh, because they don't have people to work. We have people at our borders and in our prison system um, who would do anything to get a job and and are most willing to do any kind of work that is out there. And I just cannot understand how we can't use the needs and fix this and and help people have purpose in their life by by giving them a path toward a green card, first of all, I'm not saying immediately a path toward citizenship, but first a green card, which would give people the right to work, which would give them purpose in their life, which would give them hope and ways to raise their children, and which also would help our whole um, country at this point when there is such a lack of, um, of people in the workforce. And so I think we as a country are not doing ourselves any favors by our uh, inability to, to um, find a better way to reach out to those who are at our borders 
who are asking for an opportunity. That is, that is from a, a purely practical, realistic point of view. As, um, as a Catholic sister, my life is about reaching out to those in need. And we, if we do not do that, um, we have a higher um, responsibility to, um, to, to answer to a higher person. We have, you know, the Lord, Jesus tells us very clearly, you know, when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in need of, of clothing and shelter, you, you were there. And uh, that mandate is, is, is much higher even in my understanding of life and, and way of living life, that if we do not respond to the call to um, give shelter and food and clothing to our brothers and sisters, who are in such desperate need, then uh, we are not living up to the vocation that God has given us of belonging to God as a son and daughter, because these are his sons and daughters as well. So there is a, a, a layer of, of um, importance um, that I would would put regarding your, your, your question. Uh, so my hope is that uh, good people continue to take that seriously. And, and look, I have seen so many groups of people and individuals who are, are reaching out and who are um, donating time and food and uh, resources to those in need. Uh, so there is a lot of hope and there are a lot of good people that no one has any clue. Um, and, and I have to say, I experienced that so much even those, those months uh, that I was down in McKellen, you know, uh, friends, uh, relatives, acquaintances, they would, they would send resources and send food and send clothing and send money and say, you know, use it for those in need, use it for those in need. And uh, so there, there is a network of people in our country that do want to help and do want to, um, to make the, the United States a place of welcome and a place where people can again find safety and find purpose in their life. And so I, I'm grateful and, and I don't want to not um, end this, uh, this time of sharing without the, the hope that I feel and, and have seen and continue to experience. Uh, and, and, I, and I see that in my students themselves too. They, they are very um, service oriented and we will go to Mexico to um, food kitchens uh, for people on the border and, and do fundraisers and bring clothing and try to alleviate some of the, the desperate need of the right now. Um, so that's, that's my hope, is that people continue to respond to the needs of, of those uh, trying to find a place in our country, um, whether it's um, through resettlement, whether it's through donations, whether it's through volunteering. And then the, the other uh, level is that of our government, that we would look at the needs of our country and the need for uh, employment, um, our empl that employers are looking to give employment and, and recognize that we have this whole resource that we are refusing to, um, to acknowledge and, and try to bridge those two needs. I think that kind of sums it up. <laughs>
that well that's excellent and and i absolutely share that that same answering to god as an authority of you know the image of god and everyone he's made us in his image um I did actually, this is one thing I, I can offer to this conversation with my economics background. I did want to offer, hopefully, a word of, uh, I guess it would just be insight to anyone that is thinking about immigration and economics, just really briefly. Because what you said is exactly right, where there's businesses looking for laborers. But let's say just hypothetically, because obviously the labor market goes up and down, someone might say, well, I don't like it when people come from other countries because they're stealing my job. Um, and I just want to dispel that myth just briefly. Um, the economy, in a lot of ways, it's it's not like a, a piece of pie that, you know, you've only got so much pie to go around. When you add more people to a population of a city, um, not only are they going to be working for a job, but they're also going to be consuming. So they also are are going to need to be housed. So now there are more jobs to create those houses or those apartments. They're going to need to eat. So there are more grocery stores or more restaurants. So I... I didn't really want to get too distracted with that, but that is something I can just offer an encouraging word for anyone that's in the back of their mind. They're thinking, oh, they're going to steal my jobs. Um, that's actually not necessarily how the the economy works. And actually, I mean, if you think about it, when we have children, um, we're not necessarily concerned that they're going to steal our jobs. We're growing our population and, you know, wonderful. I'm glad we do they are going to need to have houses, they're going to need to eat food, they're going to want to participate in the economy. So not only are they employed, but they also create other jobs by their needs as well. So I did just want to mention that briefly. Um, no, so. I think you say that very well, because that I, I think that is um, a reality that we, we don't, I, I don't know why, but we don't seem to be looking at as a country. And I think it's one of the most practical things that we could do. And maybe it's because, like I said, I live in Arizona that has these for-profit prisons and people are languishing and, and they're, they're, you know, they're clinging to some kind of hope and there's, there's just doesn't seem to be any hope to give them other than keep them incarcerated. And that just is so counterproductive. Um, so, no, I think you, you explained it really well. And you're right. I think anybody that's saying they're going to take my job, <laughs> uh, they, they, don't, um, they shouldn't have to worry about their job because there's plenty out there. <laughs> right. Well, any last thoughts before we go? I know um, we, I've really, again, I think the word I keep using is appreciate because um, it, you're truly a source of uh wisdom and um i've always been encouraged just by you as my aunt but i'm really grateful that i can share your thoughts to others as well oh luke no it's been really wonderful to share with you and i'm excited that you have this podcast and i am humbled that your listeners would take time to listen to me and i will continue to uh to um support all that you are doing because uh, as I said when we bring truth uh, to um, the lives of others it 
it is a way for us all to grow and to deepen what is important in our lives. And um, I think that it's, it's really important to open up these conversations. And I hope that my part of this has helped bring some clarity, some understanding um, to the, the very complex issue and that we all continue to pray and ask for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how uh, each of us are called to respond to this. And um, for those that feel uh, it's too daunting, uh, prayer is a very powerful uh, response to um, looking at the needs of others and at the displaced people in our world. So I, I really am appreciative and grateful and appreciate your patience and being able to connect uh, through all this time and look forward to listening to more of your, your really uh, well-prepared podcast. So God bless you and thank you. Oh, thanks, Marianne. And thank you everyone who has stuck with us for this episode. Um, I am really glad that it could be a longer one because I think it's one of those conversations that we intentionally want to take some more time to think about. Um, and with that, uh, that'll be our episode for this week. If you want to join us next week, we will be bringing you Purity Reimagined. So we'll see you next week. <laughs>